You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. It's good to be with you. Let's pray as we go to the Word. Um, We need God to teach us, and uh, we need ears that are ready to hear. So let's go to Him. So gracious Father, give us those ears to hear, the eyes to see, the hearts to believe and obey what you have to teach us. Um, God, this book can be challenging, it can be complicated, and yet we know it is your power to salvation. Um, Lord, would you give us a deeper understanding of your ways, Lord, that really aren't our ways, and give us a greater confidence that your ways work. They are effective, God. They accomplish your purposes. Um, Jesus, open our eyes to see it for your sake. Amen. So today I want to talk about something that most Christians know they're supposed to be doing, but very few Christians actually do. Flossing. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, it's evangelism. I want to talk about evangelism. We're talking about talking about Jesus with those who don't yet know Jesus, sharing our faith. In 2016, LifeWay Research conducted a nationwide survey of unchurched people. It's an interesting survey. You know, most of the unchurched people surveyed had Christian friends. They knew Christians. And yet when asked, has anyone explained to you how to become a Christian, only 29% said yes. So the majority of people had Christian friends, but 71% of those people had never had a Christian friend explain the full gospel message. Here's what's more interesting. 47% of the respondents said they were open to having religious conversations. So think about that. One out of every two people was open to talking about Jesus. More open than I would assume. Yet most Christians I've met are pretty reluctant to have those conversations. You ever feel that way? Now, at this point in the talk, you might be starting to worry like, oh, no, I know what kind of talk is coming. Here's another thing I'm failing at. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Hear me, this isn't that talk. Look, this is really hard for me, too. It's pretty easy to get up here and preach the gospel. It's not easy to do it in my neighborhood. It's easy to be a lion on Sunday and a lamb on Monday and keep my mouth shut. So I don't want to beat you up. I have a struggle with this, too. And so I just want to look at what Scripture says and hopefully give you some more confidence to take more risks in this area because I know that you have someone in your life who's far from God, and instead of praying, oh God, would you send someone to share the gospel with them? Well, guess what? You're probably the answer to that prayer. Give you greater confidence to to take a few risks and talk about Jesus. Because the Bible says, tell people about Jesus. The data says that a lot of people are more interested in hearing about Jesus than we might think. So, So why don't we talk about Jesus? Here are some of the reasons I hear. Jeff, uh, the gospel is offensive. 
if you haven't realized. Especially in this culture, in a secular culture, people are just off-put by this message. People don't want to hear this. And Jeff, I'm not qualified. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm not an academic. I'm not a scholar. And besides, my life is a mess. Why would someone want to listen to me? And frankly, Jeff, I'm scared. I don't want to look silly. I don't want to look foolish. I don't want to get asked a question that I don't have the answer to. Have you ever felt any of those? Yeah? Anybody? I've felt those. Yeah. Okay. Here's the astounding thing about today's passage. Paul addresses all of these. All of these. All of these objections in one passage. And here's what's even more astounding about what Paul says. He says that the very things that keep us from sharing the gospel are the things God uses to bring people to himself. The things that deter you from sharing the gospel, Paul would say, are actually the things that would motivate you to share the gospel. What if these things we feel, these aren't bugs, they're actually features? What if God designed it this way, that the gospel is supposed to sound foolish, that we're supposed to feel unqualified, and when we're scared, that's actually the best time to preach the gospel? That sounds kind of upside down, doesn't it? It is. That's what this passage is about, is the upside-down power of the message of the cross. And if you get what Paul is saying, this more than anything, I think, will change the way you look at talking about Jesus with other people. So we're continuing in 1 Corinthians. And as we've seen, the Corinthian church was a mess. It's a mess, and yet Jesus loved them anyways. And Paul loved them anyway. So they were a mess, but they were a blessed mess. That's encouraging, isn't it? Because no matter how messed up our church gets, there's hope for us. Jesus loves us right where we are, but Jesus doesn't leave us where we are. And in this letter, Paul loves the Corinthians where they are and then shows them how the gospel can answer their deepest conflicts with each other. It can answer their most vexing questions. And as we've seen in the first four chapters of this book, the big problem this church was dealing with was division. Division. This is a divided church. Corinth, as we've seen, is a competitive culture. It's status-seeking. It's power-hungry. People are clawing at each other, and that's what was happening in the church. This church just reflected the culture. The, the Corinthians, they weren't content to just be Christians. As we saw last week, they wanted to be superior Christians, spiritual Christians, better than other Christians, Christians. They wanted the right beliefs, follow the right kind of leaders. And so what's at the root of their division? Well, the root of this is pride. And that's always at the root of division is pride, self-importance. And do you know why the Corinthians were proud? Paul talks about it today. It's because they didn't really grasp the implications of the gospel. Let's go back to verse 17. We looked at this last week. Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Hear this part. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The Corinthians were obsessed with wisdom, with the latest intellectual trends, and they saw the gospel as the newest fad. The latest hip thing to believe, successful people believed this, and we could climb the social ladder and get status by believing this. We can live a successful life, and now Paul's going to drop the hammer. 
And he's going to say the gospel is not of this world. It doesn't sound like eloquent worldly wisdom. In fact, it's antithetical to worldly wisdom. And if the Corinthians truly understood the gospel, they wouldn't be proud. In fact, they would be profoundly humbled. The gospel runs counter to our expectations of how things work. Because God's way of doing things, family, it's upside down. It's upside down, but that's the power of the gospel. Jeff, what are you talking about? Three things today. Three things I want you to see. Paul says three things. First, what does God give us? The gospel, the message of the cross. You know what the world sees it as? A foolish message. But it sounds foolish by design because the foolishness exposes the limits of the world's wisdom. Second, the cross creates a people who are lowly, unimpressive. That's who God is picking to be on his team. Why would he do that? Actually, that's what serves to humble the proud. And third, people who serve God serve them in weakness That's how Paul served with fear and trembling. Why? Because that's what displays the power of God. You see the upside down nature of everything in the Christian life? In the world's eyes, the gospel is an unimpressive message delivered unimpressively that creates a very unimpressive people. That's the church. So there's no room for pride there, right? No room for pride for the Corinthians or for us. But as we'll see, this also gives us profound confidence especially as we think about sharing the gospel. So three points here. First, the message of the cross. Paul's first point is this. The message God gives us is not of this world. This is a message that's going to sound weird. Weird. Have you ever felt that way when you're talking about the gospel? Have you ever been in a spiritual conversation with someone who's yet to believe, and you're explaining the gospel, and you're sort of, you're hearing it through their ears, right? Right? And you're thinking about the words that are coming out of your mouth and you go, whoa, this is weird, isn't it? (laughs) What I believe sounds really strange. And perhaps you've wondered, like, God, like, you could have given us another message, right? Why Why not give us something that's more marketable? Why did God give us this message? Because at best, it's weird. At worst, it's deeply offensive. And jarring. Why would God set things up that way? Well, Paul tells us in this passage. He says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but those who are called both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God For the foolishness of God, the gospel, is wiser than men. The weakness of God, the gospel, is stronger than men. 
So what did Paul preach? You know, for my whole life, I've been told that the Bay Area is post-Christian. Jeff, we live in a post-Christian culture. We were post-Christian before it was cool to be post-Christian, right? We've been post-Christian forever, and the challenge, the hand-wringing you do is like, oh my gosh, this message is so off-putting, so controversial. How will we ever present it here? You know what's really encouraging to realize? Before there was a post-Christian culture, there was a pre-Christian culture. (laughs) Corinth, and guess what? The gospel was very off-putting there. Very off-putting. Paul says, do you know what it sounded like? Foolishness. Paul isn't saying the gospel is literally foolishness. The gospel has internal coherence. It has evidence for it. He's saying that it always appears foolish to the world. How did the gospel land for Paul's hearers? Well, Paul preached to two groups, to Jews and to Greeks. What did Jews think when they heard the gospel? The Jews, they were scandalized by the gospel because what the Jews were expecting was power. They wanted power. They were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from their political oppressors, and they wanted a king with imperial power. And what were the Jews constantly looking for? Signs. In Jesus' ministry, what are the Pharisees always asking for? Signs. Show us signs of miraculous power. Do more miracles because we need a powerful king. And it isn't, isn't it amazing that no matter how many G- miracles Jesus did, it was never enough. They always wanted more displays of power. Why? Because Jesus was the wrong kind of Messiah. He was gentle. He was lowly. He was not outwardly impressive. And to them, the cross was the ultimate offense. When Paul says, we preach a crucified Messiah, a crucified king, to Jewish ears, that is a contradiction in terms. That doesn't make any sense. That's jumbo shrimp, right? A civil war. It doesn't make any sense. It's a healthy Niners roster. It doesn't, it doesn't, they don't, they don't go together, okay? Doesn't make any sense, right? Because Messiah, by definition, means to conquer. Crucifixion, by definition, meant you were conquered. The two terms don't go together. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Jews looked at Jesus hanging on the tree. They did not say he's the king. They said, of course, he's cursed. He's cursed, and we should reject him too. So this was a scandal. That's Jews. What about the Gentile, the non-Jewish world? Well, Well, to the Greek, the Hellenistic world, Uh, This message, it was foolish, not just in the sense of irrational, but silly. Like, you really believe that? The the Greek world prized wisdom, and, and you know how you could tell if someone was wise, if they had life figured out? They had wealth, power, influence, high status. And so now they hear this message Paul preaching about a king, the highest status person, Dying by crucifixion? Crucifixion is the most humiliating way to die. If you were to create a status ladder in the Roman Empire, if you were crucified, you were right at the bottom. You can't get more shameful than this. Uh, The Roman orator Cicero said, the word crucifixion should not be uttered in polite company. It's that contemptible, that distasteful. And so now... 
Paul is saying, we worship a king who died the most shameful death. Sign me up, right? I want to follow that guy. I'm sure there's a lot of honor in this for me. So you see the point? We worry that the gospel doesn't play well in our culture. The gospel doesn't play well in any culture. It is always jarring. It is always offensive. And so why? Well, God, this whole cross thing, this is not marketable. Why would God do it this way? Well, it's intentional. Here's why God does it. Because that jarring message exposes the limits of our own wisdom. It shows that our wisdom isn't God because God comes up with something that we would never have come up with. Does that make sense? See, this has been God's plan from the beginning. God quotes, uh, Paul rather quotes from Isaiah 29, where God says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Back in Isaiah's day, the Israelites were really scared of the Assyrian empire. They feared that the Assyrians were going to invade them. And God says, don't worry, trust me, I'm going to deliver you. And see what all of Israel's leaders did? They said, we've got a better idea. Let's trust in our own wisdom. And the wisdom of the day said, the thing you need to do is go make a political alliance with Egypt. Egypt's got a military. You make a treaty with them, you'll be safe from Assyria. And God goes, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, don't do that. Trust in me. Don't trust in Egypt. What does Israel do? All the brightest minds of the day said, we need to make a treaty with Egypt They do it, and God says, I'm going to destroy your wisdom. You know what happens? Israel makes a treaty with Egypt. It provokes Assyria, because now Assyria is startled. There's too much power, so they attack Egypt and invade Israel. And the thing Israel feared comes upon them. Why? Because they trusted in their own wisdom, and then they had to rely on God and his wisdom to deliver them. See, that is always how God does things. He delivers in such a way that makes us despair of our own wisdom so that we have to trust in him. What's the ultimate example of that? The cross. The cross. That's the point. See, God saves in such a way that it confounds our own wisdom. People don't come to Christ until they see the limits of their own ability to figure things out. Period. And and what Paul is saying here is that we cannot find God through our own wisdom. Why? Our wisdom has been corrupted by sin. People, because of sin, they create worldviews, they create systems of truth, they discover some true things. You know who they don't discover? God. Because our thinking is corrupted by sin And our own corrupted thinking always leads to not finding the true God, but to creating what? False gods. Gods that we like, that look like us. That's the problem. And so when God saves us, it has to be clear. We aren't finding God. God is finding us. A crucified Christ gets that message across because it creates a crisis. No one looks at the crucified Christ and goes, yep, I saw that coming. God, that's exactly how I knew he would make himself known, right? No one has ever thought that. And so it's a crisis. Wow, I really don't have reality figured out, and so I have two options. Either I can reject this as foolishness, or I can despair of my own wisdom and say there's something I don't know that maybe God has revealed. Does that make sense? That's why God does this. So guys, this isn't a bug, it's a feature. It's designed this way by God because people don't come to God until they realize they can't find him. If it was just me intellectually discovering God, guess what I would be? Prideful. I figured it out. 
It's about me. I figured out the perfect system for discovering truth. I can't. I need God to find me. That's the point of the cross. The message offends people from every culture. That's by design to make us despair of our own wisdom. Here's the amazing thing. What does this message produce? Profound cross-cultural transformation. Think about this. The Jews hated the message. The Greeks derided the message. Who does Paul say it saves? Jews? Greeks? People from every culture. Do you see what, what, what Paul is saying here? The message is rejected by every culture and transforms people from every culture, which is the proof it doesn't arise from culture. This message, where does it come from? God. And that's true wherever the gospel goes, it is jarring to the values of the culture, and then ultimately it transforms the culture because it's something outside, outside this world. It's from God himself. This is what's amazing about this passage. You know, when God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, that's actually what the gospel did to the pagan world. <laughs> the gospel message reshaped the way that people thought about everything. You know, where do our moral intuitions come from? Have you ever thought about this, our moral imagination? Like, why do we think the way we do? Why do we believe in universal human rights? Are the fundamental equality of men and women, rich and poor, why do we think rich people should be concerned about poor people? Why do we think, yeah, maybe we should tax them, we should have a social safety net, we should look out for the little guy, we should care about vulnerable people. We should look out for the overlooked people. Do you know what those beliefs sounded like in the Roman pagan world? Foolishness. Do you know what those beliefs are? The downstream effects of the message of the cross reshaping the way that people thought about everything. The things that seem so plausible now were ridiculous back then. Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, he wrote a book called Dominion that's all about how we think about everything, how Christianity has shaped our moral intuitions. Here's what he says. We are all heirs to the same revolution, a revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. That's not a believer saying that. Not a Christian. He's just looking at history and seeing how this played out. The, the foolishness of God actually is wiser than the wisdom of man. <laughs> That's the point, right? And, and here's why this is an encouragement to us. We're always going to feel this little ick factor when it comes to sharing the gospel. Like, oh, this message isn't going to land exactly right. No matter how nicely I say it or explain it, that's fine. The message is meant to awaken people to, oh, this isn't what I would have come up with. Here's an implication that, that flows from that as you're sharing the gospel with people. Listen, um, it's not just about finding common ground. It's okay to just point out what actually makes Christianity distinct. Distinct. Every conversion requires a sort of intellectual train wreck, okay? <laughs> Where you go, wow, the way I thought everything worked isn't the way everything works. I need a paradigm shift. That's what repentance is. It's rethinking things. It's okay to talk about what makes it distinct. In our culture, there are things that are offensive about the gospel, but, but that's an opportunity to show why the gospel is different than the way that everyone thinks. So, for example, in our culture, how do you find out who you are? What is personal identity only I can discover it, right? That's the goal of life is only I know who I am and I have to find it. 
What does the gospel say? You can't know who you are. Only Jesus can tell you who you are. In fact, you have to receive an identity from Jesus. He can tell you who you are. You can't discover it. You know what? It's actually helpful to point that out to non-believers when you're talking to them. I find it immensely helpful to go, yeah, you know, we come at this from radically different places. You think you can find out who you are. I think I can't know who I am unless God tells me and unless I know Christ because that's who I'm created to know. You're right. We're way different on this. Radically different. And you know why I like believing the gospel rather than what you believe? is because if it's up to me to find out who I am, do you know what that creates? Paralyzing anxiety. Only I can know who I am. When do I know I found myself? Good luck. Just keep looking for the real me in here, uh, me chasing me, right, into me to find out who I am and what makes me valuable and wonderful and all these things. That is paralyzing. How much better to just by grace be told who you are by God and receive from the only one who can define reality who I am? That's a relief. Oh, man, that's, I love the gospel, man. That's so much better than this. You see, the distinctiveness of the gospel is to our advantage as we're sharing it because no one comes to faith because they go, oh yeah, that's exactly what I kind of wanted to believe anyway. Does that make sense? Don't be afraid of gently pointing out what makes Christianity distinct. So that's point one. This isn't a bug, it's a feature. Here's point two. Um, You hear that and go, okay, the gospel's offensive. I get it, Jeff, all right. But who am I? I don't want to share the gospel. I want, I want impressive people to share the gospel, right? If we get the best spokespeople, if the right athletes and rappers and politicians talk about the gospel, then the culture will change, right? You ever heard people talk that way? I fall into that trap that, that man, if the cool people believe the gospel, then what's the gospel going to become? Cool, Right? And we'll see revival. Like, remember, remember when Kanye had his come to Jesus moment? Kanye West, remember this? Um, right? And he, he, you know, and it was like encouraging. Like, he's putting out a gospel album. And I'm, you know, at the time, a lot of Christians were really excited about this. And I had this thought in my head. I'm like, man, what if Kanye leads Kim Kardashian? <laughs> like, what if he leads her to Christ? And then like, they become like the model Christian couple. And like she gets off Instagram. She puts the gram away like Kanye told her to do, right? What if she does it? And then they just become like the archetype of a godly Christian couple. Man, the influence they'll have. And that didn't pan out, did it, right? It didn't work. <laughs> but, but what's the thinking? Man, if we can just get the people with the most clout, you know, we just get Kanye and Kim and maybe Jay-Z and Beyonce and a few other politicians to believe this stuff, then everyone will become Christians. Is that how the gospel works? No, that's how worldly influence works, right? We always assume that the influence is going to work from the inside of culture out. Do you know how kingdom influence works? Usually from the outside of culture in. It starts with the nobodies. They're the early adapters to the gospel. They get it, and slowly, imperceptibly over time, it reaches the center of the culture and changes it. That's going to change the way we think about influence. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many powerful, not many noble birth, not a lot of Kims and Kanyes in this congregation. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's God's purpose, no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Corinthians were really concerned about status. They wanted to be impressive people. And Paul says, you've got this whole thing wrong. Do you remember what most of you were when you were called to salvation? Who did God pick to be part of this church? To sum it up, it was the nobodies. I love verse 28. He says that you are the things that are not. You could translate that the nobodies of culture. That's how these people were looked at, poor, lowly. Most of this congregation was lower class people who had come to faith in Jesus. There weren't many who were wealthy or had any worldly success. This isn't how the gospel works, Paul says. That that when God sets out to establish his church, how does he do it? See, God is sovereign in salvation. He's not just sitting back waiting for people to come to him. He's actively creating his church, and he does something by design. Who is he picking? A whole bunch of people, not all, but a whole bunch, who the world would look at as the scum of the earth, the forgotten, the cast-offs, the dropouts, the marginalized, the people everyone else forgets about, they come flocking to Jesus, and that's by design. That's always been God's design. Deuteronomy 7, God says to Israel, I didn't pick you because you were the best nation. You, you, you weren't the most impressive nation. In fact, you were the littlest nation. But I picked you. James 2, God says, or James says, has not God chosen who? The poor to be rich in faith, the materially poor. Listen, that's just historically true. If you look at how the gospel spreads, it explodes on the margins. It explodes on the margins, and the center of Christianity has always been shifting, always been shifting throughout history. It exploded in the east, and the center of Christianity shifted. It shifted over time from Jerusalem to Europe. It shifted to America at some point. It's out of America now. It's in the global south and the east. It's always shifting. There is no one center of power for Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is always exploding among the least of these. Always. And it's interesting that the more affluent and powerful a nation gets, often the less Christian it gets. The gospel does not work like worldly values. Do you see that? The question for us is why? Because clearly God is in this. God is intentionally saving people in this way so that the makeup of his church is a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of unimpressive people, and a few maybe somebodies in the world eyes. Why does he do that? To humble the proud, the elite, the inner ring. Think about it. If revival broke out among the wealthy and influential and elite, what would we all think? God loves the wealthy, the influential, and the elite, and I need to achieve like them to be loved by God. But what does God do? 
His work often completely bypasses the centers of power to show us that God's priorities are not the world's priorities. And to humble the world and to humble the halves of the world into thinking, I might have all this, but apparently I've missed what God is doing in the world. Because ultimately, everyone comes to God the same way on our knees. Realizing that it's not my wealth, it's not my status, it's not who I am, it's not my wealth, that is filthy rags before God. That will not commend me to God. And so at the foot of the cross, who are we? We are all the nobodies. God has a plan in this. God saves that way to humble us and so that we see that only in Jesus is our wisdom, redemption, sanctification, righteousness. In ourselves, we have nothing. What do we have in Jesus? Paul says he's the wisdom of God. That means he is God's grand plan for salvation. You see it all. What does that mean? It means he's our redemption. That in Jesus, we're freed from the dominion of sin. We are put in the kingdom of God. We are now slaves to righteousness, free from sin in him. Jesus is our righteousness. That means we have Jesus' own status before God. We are justified in him, declared acquitted, not guilty, innocent, righteous in Christ. Jesus is our sanctification. What does that mean? That we belong to God now. We're holy. We are his possession. We've talked about that. All of that is in Christ. And when you really get that, guess what you boast in? Jesus. Him we proclaim, not ourselves. It's about him. See, that's what the Corinthians were missing. They thought there was some extra boast. I'm the special kind of Christian. Nope. You just have a special Savior. That's it. That humbles you. That humbles you. Here's the good news for evangelism with this, okay? So often the things that you think disqualify you from sharing the gospel are the things that qualify you. Because they showcase his greatness and grace. Jeff, I'm not smart enough. It's not about your intelligence. It's about the power of God to save. Jeff, I'm not educated. I'm not whatever. It's not about that. You are a showcase of his grace. Maybe it's, Jeff, I've made a, a mess of my life. Who am I to share the gospel? Exactly. Exactly, because guess what? If you talk about your failures with a non-Christian, guess what you get to talk about? The gospel right? If your strategy with, with non-Christians is to say, look how amazing I am. Look how good my life is. Now let me tell you about Jesus who made my life so good. You know what they're going to think? Either you're an idiot because you're arrogant or they'll go, wow, look at you. Look how amazing you are. I want to be like you. You know what they're not talking about? Jesus. The most fruitful evangelistic conversations I've always had are when I'm talking about my failures as a Christian, by far. Do you know why? That's why I'm a Christian. Not because I needed a better life coach. I needed a savior. I needed a redeemer. I needed a power that I didn't have. And when I start talking about that, you know what people talk about? Their failures. Their shortcomings. Because now... It's a safe place to talk about that. And now we can talk about Jesus and how he meets our needs rather than saying, become like me, I'm great. If you believe in Jesus, you can be like me too. 
Now, the, the things that make us feel unqualified, often those are the best things to talk about with people. They showcase his grace. So, it's a foolish message, <laughs> creates a lowly church, and maybe you're tracking with me. You're saying, okay, Jeff, I'm still scared. I'm scared to open my mouth. Hey, me too. Do you know what's so encouraging? So was Paul. So was Paul. And yet Paul thinks that his own fear was actually an advantage in sharing the gospel. Listen to what he says. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We could say highfalutin language there. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? That your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is amazing. Um, Paul was a supremely educated man. Brilliant man. And yet, when he would preach to people, do you know what the overwhelming impression of Paul was? Eh. Eh. He's all right. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you know what Paul's opponent said about him? That he's weighty in writing but his public appearance is weak and his speech is contemptible. That's what they said. Paul ministered unimpressively. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. You know, Paul says, I didn't use plausible words of wisdom. That doesn't mean he was boring, okay? Some people have taken this as, you know, whenever you preach the gospel, there's no humor, you can't make any arguments, you can't try to persuade people. It just has to be boring all the time. Man, that would make my job easier. If I could just be boring all the time, that'd be great. It's not what Paul said, though. That, that's not what Paul means here. We, we see in other places, Paul uses arguments, Paul uses humor, Paul uses persuasion. So what does it mean? How did Paul minister? Here's what Paul did not do. In Paul's day, rhetoric, public speaking was all about the show. It was all about the spin and the hype and manipulating people's emotions and all about style and not substance. It was just marketing, right? Thankfully, we're past that, right? That doesn't change today. No, right? That is always how messaging works, right? If you're a candidate, you have to race to the bottom of the brainstem with people, right? To just get them provoke whatever's in there, right? And so it can never just be like reasonable policies that will work over a long period of time, right? That's not, that's, that's nobody. No, it's like democracy is over if I don't get elected, right? I am the only one who can restore America or we are doomed, right? Like God's judgment is going to fall on this nation unless I get in the way, right? And, and save us. You have to talk like that. Why? To manipulate people into making a decision. To, to get their emotions so inflamed that they need, that's, how, that's never changed. That's always the way marketing works. It's this race to the bottom of the brainstem where you just have to trigger whatever anger or fear or lust or desire the people have and inflame that. That's what Paul didn't do. He didn't conform to the conventions of his day. He just preached Christ crucified. Here's what it means to live in light of Christ crucified. Christ crucified. And, and people went, huh? 
He argued it, he persuaded, but it wasn't an impressive thing. And here's the amazing thing about Paul. Not only did he not give in to the hype of marketing for his day, he didn't come across as a powerful, confident person. He says, Corinthians, I was among you in weakness, in fear, trembling. If you read 1 Corinthians, sorry, uh, Acts 18, and you look at Paul planting the church in Corinth, it's clear Paul was intimidated by the city. It's a big, powerful, cosmopolitan city. There's persecution. There's opposition. In fact, it looks like Paul was going to leave, and then Jesus had to appear to him in a dream and say, stay. Don't leave, Paul. I've got many people for you in this city. You've got to stay. And so he stayed 18 more months. But isn't that amazing that Paul was terrified? See, Paul is much more like us than we realize. He, he realizes there's a cost to this. He realizes he looks foolish, that he's getting rejected, and yet he does it anyway. Even as he's shaking, he preaches Jesus. Why? He says, you know what? That's God's design too. Because that way, God's power is the thing that shines through. And Paul isn't the showcase what? It's the power of God. You know this is true, that when a person is nervous, but they say something anyway, you go, wow, they must really care about what they said. Right? And see, for Paul, there was no disconnect between the message and the man. He preached a crucified Christ who died in weakness. He came in weakness. He probably had physical ailments. He wasn't impressive. He was trembling, and he preached, and he said, that's what's going to unleash the power of God. Because when I'm weak, that means God has to show up and do something, and he is strong. You guys, this book destroys faulty thinking. It overturns sinful patterns. It confounds wisdom. This thing is the hammer. We don't have to be. We don't have to be. We can serve in weakness. I'm amazed. You know, I'll come up here and preach. This happens like every week. Jeff, how did you know what was going on in my life? You spoke exactly to the thing. Were you spying on me? What happened? Yes, I was spying on you, right? <laughs> That's what's happening. Yes, I was just going to passively, aggressively talk about you in my talk. No. No, I have no. When I'm preparing a sermon, I'm not like, ooh, what are the specific things going on? I'm going to talk to that person without telling them. Like, that's, no, that's just the word of God. That the spirit of God takes the word of God and will just disclose the hidden thoughts and intentions of your heart. And so you walk away thinking, oh man, God is messing with me. When we share the gospel, that's what happens. If we keep it centered on Christ crucified and the word. Because then people have to deal with the word, and this is the sledgehammer God uses to deal with people. It's not us. We don't do the heavy lifting. In fact, when we're most intimidated, that's a great chance to share the gospel. Because then we come in weakness to preach a Christ who was made weak for you. Does that make sense? This all works together. And here's the thing. Paul is saying, I wasn't impressive, but you know when I preached the gospel, you experienced what? The power of God. Things started changing in your life. You knew the spirit of God was there. He started doing stuff and you knew it was God at work, not me. Does that make sense? Here's the implication for us. I want you to think about that, that relationship in your life where you're like, man, I'm never gonna get to a spiritual conversation with this person, Ever. Right? There's like 16 steps before I get to the gospel with this person. 
Here's the good news. You know that person you're most intimidated by? That might be your most effective ministry. Do you know why? Because you know that you can't deliver. (laughs) It's not going to be on you. It's going to have to be God working. And if you just cross one of those barriers to say, hey, have you ever thought about spiritual things? Like, what's your background? What do you believe? Hey, hey, like, where do you find value in truth in life? What does that mean? Can I tell you where I do? Like, even if you're terrified, guess what? That's what qualifies you to preach the gospel there. That's really good news. And the worst, I'll tell you right now, the worst gospel conversations I've ever had is when I was most confident. I'm serious. I remember debating with a guy at like a fair. Oh, man. He was running this, this like shop and, and he was really abrasive and there was a crowd gathering as we're talking, which is, which is bad, right? It's like social media before there's social media, like people know we're debating. And this guy was just, was a fool. And I'm like, he needs to be shown that he is a fool. And I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> High five, God, I've got this one. I'm going to, and, and he's saying all of these things that are, that are incoherent and, and internally contradictory, and I know it, and, and if this is a chess game, I've got him. And everyone's watching, and I said, I want to win, and I want to make him feel stupid. That was my thought. And I said, you, my friend, that argument, you just took an epistemological broad jump into a pile of swords with what you just said. And that's a bad thing to say. First, because I intentionally used a word that he probably wasn't going to understand to make him feel stupid. And second, clearly, the goal was to shame this guy in front of everyone watching. Now, here's the thing. I was right. I won the argument. I lost the man right then. Because he looked at me and said, I'm going to talk to your friends. I don't want to talk to people like you. That's what happens. If it's about you, your wisdom, your confidence, then it's about me rejecting you or me accepting you. It's not about the power of God. When you come humbly, when you come in weakness, when you come as gently as possible, that makes it clear that it's God's power at work, not yours. So if you feel scared, that's a good sign God wants to use you just to let you know. All right? All right. You know, here, 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 as we close, you know, here's my prayer for us. Just, just think about that person, the one in your life who, who you know that God wants you to talk to about Jesus. You realize that the barriers are actually the opportunities, right? I, I just want you to spend a moment and pray that God would give you a clear opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. Clear opportunity to take the next step in that spiritual conversation. Would you close with me now? Let's just spend a moment in silent prayer. Lord, the gospel is so profoundly humbling. Um, We don't believe it because we figured reality out that we found you, you found us. God, you didn't pick us because we were qualified, Lord. You picked us to showcase your grace. And God, when you call us to minister, it's not in a way that we will ever get glory for ourselves, but only to get glory for you. Uh, Lord, what 
a humbling reality, but, but what confidence we have in you, Jesus, uh, that you are mighty to save. And so, Jesus, wherever you're calling us to just take a next step in talking about Jesus, I pray by your Spirit, would you fill us with divine power to speak the name of Christ and him crucified. And Lord, would we see the power of God for salvation in people's lives as they move from darkness to light and death to life. And we ask it in your name. Amen.